Good day, y'all. It's Dave from the Big Red F Restaurant Group, based out of my hometown of Boulder, Colorado. Thanks for tuning in to the F Club Podcast, where we sit and have interesting conversations with all kinds of interesting folks doing all kinds of interesting things. Today, we're talking about oysters. Usually when we talk about oysters, we talk about shucking, grilling, what we can put on top of them, how to store them, where to get them. But today we're going back to the roots. These farmers, these hardworking men and women around the country producing oysters. We're sort of focusing on the east and the south for today's conversation. But it's not an easy task, what these folks are doing, getting them on a truck and a plane and delivering them safely all over the country. Joining me today is my friend and chef partner at Jack's Fish House, Sheila Lucero. Cullen Duke from the Mobile Oyster Company in Mobile, Alabama. Travis Croxton from the Rappahannock River Oyster Company. They produce our Emerson Oyster at Jack's Fish House. John Fallon, the Director of Sustainability and Coastal Conservation Initiatives at Audubon Nature Institute. And our friend, Chef Ryan Pruitt, James Beard Award-winning chef, owner of Pesh Restaurant and the Culinary Director of the Link Group in New Orleans. We celebrate the oyster at Jack's in the month of March. Usually we have a rockin' big High West Oyster Fest, five, six, seven hundred people somewhere around the city. Crazy fun around the world of oysters, those gray pillows of pleasure. But this year, obviously, with the pandemic, we can't, so we've got a lot of fun things happening at all the Jack's locations. So check your calendar and check your website and see if we can't fulfill your oyster dreams this month of March. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, so thanks for joining you all here on the F Club podcast. It's all about oysters today. We've got a bunch of guests. I'm sitting here at Jackson Glendale with Sheila Lucero, my trusted cohort at Jack's Fish House. Sheila's been the exec chef for 24 years now. And first up, I want to talk to Cullen Duke and Travis Croxton. Interesting to have two gentlemen with sort of the same background and sort of the same way in which they got to the place they are. Cullen, I'll start with you, man. Like, trust advisor at the bank. You're a lawyer, <laughs> a thriving law firm. You're on the board of the Baykeepers, taking care of Mobile Bay. You founded the farmer's market. You got three boys. If you're not on your bike, you're out sailing, and you're, you're running this family generational oyster business called Mobile Oyster Company. Like, what the fuck, dude? What else do you have time for, you slack? Yeah, there, there's a lot going on, right? And certainly stay busy anytime. But, you know, it's a blast. Got into the oysters originally, you know, from the environmental perspective, really. Grew up down here on the water. Always loved seafood, oysters in particular. But farming oysters was something I wasn't really looking to do back in 2011. You know, so many things have just been good luck and then falling into it, really. I don't know how much you want to hear about it. Yes, but, um, you, say it, you say it wasn't something you were looking to do, but then you follow it with it's it's so freaking awesome. So how, how did yeah, you? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I didn't even know it was a possibility. You know, I was looking for a speaker one day for a group, and I was I had just really listened to an awesome podcast about the health of urban lakes. And I thought, well, I need to get some information on the health of urban lakes. I'll call the extension office and see if somebody can talk about that. And, you know, coincidentally, the guy who answered the phone, his name was PJ Waters, who was running the Mobile Bay Oyster Gardening Program. And PJ said, I, I don't know anything about urban lakes, but I know a lot about farming oysters because I come talk about oysters. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. Come on. So you know, PJ came and back then there was only one oyster farm in Alabama, right? And so, 
you know, we went through the presentation and I had just been working on a project down at Dolphin Island. I showed PJ on a map and Dr. Bill Walton from the Auburn Shellfish Lab. I said, you know, hey, would this be a good place to farm oysters? Because they were saying you couldn't do it in Alabama very easily because kind of the default rule is the bottomlands are always owned by the state. But I knew about some privately owned bottomlands owned by some friends of mine. And they said that that could be probably the best place in Alabama to raise oysters. So I said, all right, you know, oysters filter a lot of water. They're delicious, great for the environment. And, you know, I knew the oyster population down here, you know, had been completely wiped out. You know, they say it's like 3% of pre-Columbian levels. You know, there used to be enough oysters in the water, Mobile Bay or in Chesapeake Bay to completely turn the water over every few days. So the East River and the Hudson as well. Yeah, yeah. So I said, you know, I, I need to help with that. I'll get some of these bottom rights and I'll start raising oysters. And it got kind of crazy. Since no one else was farming oysters back then, Auburn University had all these extra oysters. They said, hey, will you take 60,000 of them? And I took them, but I didn't know what I was going to do with them all. Thankfully, then I met Ryan. So that's another story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Travis, same sort of story, maybe a little more history in 1899. Was it your great-great-grandfather or your great-grandfather? Yeah, it's our great-grandfather. He probably had it actually prior to that with his forefathers. But the, the first time that you could document owning a lease or renting a lease was 1899. So that's when it actually began with their, their family name. So your grandfather takes two acres of Rappahannock River bottom near South Hill and, and then your father gets in on it when your grandfather passes away and, and your dad and your uncle, or was it your uncle? It actually skipped a generation. So great granddad, granddad, and then our, our grandfather, you know, that was, that was wild oyster industry, right? So he did it the old way and he had some good highs, but a lot of lows. So he told his two sons to go to college. And so that's what Ryan's, father, Ryan, that's my partner, and my dad, that's what they did. So it kind of like skipped a generation. They worked on it, you know, on, on uh, summertime or, or wintertime at home. But after our grandfather passed in 91, it kind of went dormant for a few years. And then Ryan and I had a chance to, to acquire the oyster grounds from our fathers and take it over. And I mean, same thing. Colin kind of stole all of my thunder, right? He's, he got into it for the same reason, right? It's just ecologically beneficial, starts as a little hobby. And then you meet someone like, like Ryan who takes you on, on their menu and then it just proliferates from there. And all of a sudden, you got to quit your day job. <laughs> I think Jax took you on before Pruitt here. Let's, let's throw it out where it's due. Exactly. That's, that's what you get for, for talking to someone out by the trash can in the back in the alleyway, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so Jamie Fader and I are sitting in the kitchen in Jackson, Denver, Lodo, lower downtown Denver. And we were just randomly in there one day and Sheila was there and these two hillbillies walk in the back door, pulling up igloo cooler on a hot August afternoon. And they, they, you guys want to try some oysters? And I was like, what in the hell are these two doing? And then you busted out some clams and Fader was from that Maryland area. And we started talking and we've been serving those delicious Rappahannocks ever since. So yeah, that was a, an interesting connection. So in keeping with you guys, Travis, I'll ask you this question first. What happened this time last year? We all started to wind down. How was business for you right before COVID hit? What has happened over the last 12 months? And what do you see happening in the next 12 months? Yeah, we were rolling pretty well with everything. And then COVID hit. And then within a week, we lost 95% of our business. And we had to like furlough everyone we had. It's really hard to look them in the eye and 
tell them through no fault of their own. We got to lay, lay them off. I mean, you guys have the same issue. I just, it's yeah, yeah. a horrible conversation, but we told them that we had to, we'd keep going. And so we worked our asses off to keep it going. And it was, it was a lot of retail, right? We had to shift over to retail. So we're, we're lucky that we had some Whole Foods accounts nationally. And so we were still able to, to fly out to different regions like that. And then we decided let's talk to breweries and wineries and, and restaurants who are doing takeout and say, why don't you actually take these oysters on consignment? You guys actually did the same thing, right? The 25 counts. And so you don't have to, to shuck them in-house, just sell them to your clients that want to support you guys. And through that, you're able to support us. And so that actually took off. And that kind of helped us through those two months, you know, April and May. The Washington Post actually did an article on people shifting to, to online. And the day that came out, I think we got like a thousand orders. <laughs> it, was, it was too much. And then by, by you know, late May, you know, restaurants were able to start opening up because everyone had pivoted to patios and things like that. We actually had a decent summer and fall until everything shut down again. But I think if we made it this far, I think we're poised for uh, resurgence. I think you guys are definitely. I think, you know, you're seeing it. We're seeing it with your orders, right? They're skyrocketing. And I think people want to get back out there as soon as they're safe and comfortable. And I think that's right around the corner. So I'm pretty excited. And we were able to actually use that 12 months to do some introspection and kind of actually get back at what we do best, which is being involved with the oyster company a lot more than we had been. What did you do? So you're rolling last January, February into March. You got full beds. You're in full production mode. You got a bunch of oysters in the water. What happened to all those oysters? Well, see, that's a great point. Like a restaurant, you know, you can kind of, it hurts, but you can kind of like saran wrap it and just set it aside and hopefully, you know, bring people back. But a farm is is living, right? So those oysters are still growing. Normally, like you get them to market size, you clear them out, you make room for your cages to put in the smaller oysters and let them grow. And so everything got log jammed because we had all this, this product and nowhere to sell it. And so that actually created, you know, we needed more cages, which, you know, who's got capital during a pandemic to buy more cages to put the oysters in. So we were actually even toying with, do we just dump these things over? These oysters that we cultivated for two years, two and a half years, do we just throw them overboard? Because we got like two and a half inch oysters coming up that need that cage room. So we had some tough calls. I opened up some markets to take some uh, XL oysters and, you know, we're taking pennies on the dollar, but it was getting them out the door, you know, met some new good clients that way. But the farm is living. That's the main point. And you can't stop it or else you just shut down your whole cycle. Yeah. So Kellen, we'll switch to you. So from my view, from someone who's over here, you know, in the middle of the country and we opened Jack's Boulder in 1994, and we were heavily into Apalachicola oysters at that point. Like that was the an easy oyster to get, was an easy oyster to shuck. It was priced well, and we never had any problems with them for four or five years. Late 90s, early 2000s, that whole bay took a huge hit. Yeah, uh, just yeah the some, freshwater wars with Atlanta, sure. Yeah, some bad actors and some bad management kind of crippled that whole Apalachicola industry. And then they climbed back, and then in 13... 11 and 12, the production slows down way again. We had not served any Southern oysters since then. And then you've got this oyster farm that you're looking at. How have you fought the sort of Southern oyster bad rap? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's crazy, you know, that there's a lot of bias against the Southern oyster, right? I mean, I even remember reading back in, you know, MFK Fisher, consider the oyster, you know, the, the few pages that they mentioned Southern oysters. And it's just kind of ridiculous. You know, they're definitely going to be different, you know, than an East Coast oyster. But, you know, I, I think there's beauty in the difference, right? I do think it was pretty encouraging early in the farming process. They We went to a blind tasting. It was kind of like bottle shock. You know, they had the Crassostria virginica oysters, which is pretty much, you know, most everything on the East Coast or Gulf Coast. Blind tasting. And, and our little oyster from Dolphin Island, you know, got top marks for the species. You know, and I know that was just one little tasting, but it was kind of an eye-opener for me against the same species from other locations. You know, I, I always kind of discount rankings and things like that, you know, when it comes to something like an oyster. But, you know, it's, hey, it's possible. We can make a really good oyster down here. And, you know, a lot of the prejudice just isn't justified. I, I think a lot of that comes from high production areas of the Gulf, right, where you consistently have low salinity. And, you know, the, there are cruddy oysters out there, right? But if you've got somebody down here who's actually working hard as a craftsman to, you know, put out a solid product, you know, it's a good oyster. And I think it can stand next to any oyster. Colin, can I ask you a couple of questions? I just, I like to hear yeah. about the consistency, how you get to the decision-making process of how you farm your oysters, how they're racked, the long line method, or what kind of racks you use and how often you're tumbling, just getting that consistent oyster that people recognize you for. How did you get to that point and kind of walk us through that process? Yeah, you know, it's, it's constantly an evolving process. And one thing we found is that the received wisdom from how oysters are raised other places doesn't mean it's going to work, you know, on the Gulf Coast, right? We've learned from a lot of mistakes. Right now, our farm is located on a beautiful, firm, sandy bottom, you know, with that kind of sugar sand stuff, right, in about four or five feet of water. And we're not using the long line methods. We're using floating cages, you know, that you can roll the cage over to do a desiccation. And our environment is really rough, right? We get shredded by north winds. We're on the north side of a barrier island. So good protection from the south, a lot of wind from the north, and the current whips through there. So, you know, at first, you know, we started tumbling, but then we realized we haven't tumbled an oyster in years because they get tumbled so much just in the cages, constantly bouncing around. So if you were in a lower energy environment, you know, even in Alabama, maybe just a few miles away, tumbling may still be required to achieve a similar result. But so much of it is just going to be site specific. I mean, just like the taste. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that the Dolphin Island and the murder points, like I've been eating more and more Alabama oysters lately and they're really delicious and they're incredibly consistent in the same way, Travis, as your Barcat, your Stingrays, the Emersons we get. How do you get such a consistent, small, perfect oyster? I mean, they just, for years, your oysters, it's like Groundhog's Day when you open a case of Rappahannock oysters. They're the exact same. How are you guys accomplishing that? Yeah, years of practice and trial and error and just always constantly trying to improve it. That's the key. Like Colin mentioned, you, it's everything's depending on the site. So our, our farm over in, in Chincoteague, where we have the old salts, is completely different equipment set up. It's a long line system versus over on the Rappahannock where it's, it's bottom cages, six inches off the bottom. And we do a lot more tumbling over there. So it's just looking at what you have available and then adjusting and adapting with the equipment and then just trial and error through, you know, hopefully, hopefully that we're finally close to like getting it right, but we're always looking to improve, looking to make it easier on our farm team to do the job, you know, better control of, of the seed 
at the out, outset of this, you know, we get all get our seeds from hatcheries this way, right? What you do with the seed early on has a huge impact throughout its whole life and just constantly just monitoring everything that we can. So I think, you know, we're lucky. You've met Patrick, the farm manager. He's always just super inquisitive on what can I do better? Looking at other regions for what's working well over there. Can I try it here? Does it work? Or adapting to a blend of, of the best of, of everything. So yeah. constant evolution. Yep, like with life. So John Fallon, it seems you spent your entire career sort of exercising your passion for taking care of people and things, psychology degree, nonprofit of the core group, the Boys and Girls Hope group that you're counseling, young kids, and then you land this job at Audubon sort of starting at the bottom and then working your way up to the role of the director of sustainability and coastal conservation. That's a long path. And it seems the overriding theme has been your desire to take care of things and protect things and sort of guide things. Tell us a little bit about how you got to this current position and actually what the title means. Yeah, sure. So I am the director of coastal conservation and sustainability for Audubon Aquarium down here in New Orleans. And yeah, I've always been passionate about the environment and the coast. And I think it was just, you know, my dream job as a kid, I think, was always working for a zoo or aquarium. Got down to New Orleans, doing AmeriCorps after Katrina, came down after graduated college to do relief work. And I think like a lot of people who end up down here, you kind of fall in love with it and then wake up a decade later and realize you're still here doing different things. So when I was working at the aquarium, we worked in the animal husbandry departments. So we were taking care of the actual animals in the collection, right? And we decided that we need to do some better conservation work. We hadn't been doing a whole lot. So in 2011, we started developing a sustainable seafood program called Gulf. So I helped develop that program. And I've kind of worked my way up through it ever since. Project coordinating, doing outreach, and then working on more of our technical programs. We started working with chefs and restaurants in 2014, and, and that's how I met Ryan through that work, and he's now our chef council chair, and it's really been a unique opportunity to work across the Gulf Coast on seafood sustainability, which is a critically important issue down here for us from a cultural perspective, from an economic perspective, and I always tell people that it's even more important for me because I'm a terrible fisherman and I can't cook, so I really need these type of things to exist and the people to exist to harvest them so I can enjoy them. It's my, my selfish part of it. Yeah, man, I'm a career nonprofit worker. I have to have a mission. I have to care about what I do. And, you know, this is one of those perfect fits for me. Nice. Well, passion seems to be the, the theme there with you. And so that carries over into I've been reading that you're a stomper. And you're not only just a stomper, you're on the stomper board. So is this like clogging stomper? You, you put on the clogs and rip it up with the Amish folks? Or what, what do you got working down there? So the 610 Stompers, we are a Mardi Gras dance crew, an all-male Mardi Gras dance crew. So I've been a member for, I think, since 2011. You know, it's uh, we like to wear some 80s-inspired clothing, choreographed dances every year. We've raised probably close to $700,000 for charity through that. No one's one of those great places where like you can just party and it's for a good cause. So you never feel bad about it. Right. And uh, yeah. And we dance in Mardi Gras parades, RIP to this year. But yeah, man, it's a good gig. It's a nice outlet and release. It's one of those things where like, if I did that in another city, I don't feel like it would be a professional advantage, but here it definitely is. It gets you indoors in ways you would you would surprise you. But yeah, so, and then I was on the board for that too. 
giving back, making sure that we're doing the right things with our influence. Yeah, dancing in 80s clothes, raising money. That's, there's nothing, n- none of those things don't, don't sound like fun. Yeah, man. It's a great time. Yeah. So how have you seen, not just from your work, but from when you were a kid and, and from what you're looking back on at the Gulf region and the fishermen, the oyster, specifically the oyster community, how is it going down there right now? Post Katrina, post oil spills, post water rising, like how is the state of the Gulf fishery right now? So I think in Louisiana, it's been, it's been especially hit hard. I think obviously after Katrina was bad for the, the whole fishing industry took a hit just to think the infrastructure of it, but with BP and then the amount of fresh water that we seem to get consecutively through that Mississippi river system, it's particularly hard for oysters. As we all know, they're filter feeders, they're dependent on their environment, what's moving through there. And there just hasn't been the same resource that there was before 2010. I think you'll get a lot of theories as to why that is. And, you know, it could be something related to the cleanup. It could be just the impact of all that fresh water, making it difficult for those oysters to recruit and breed and develop. But things have, have definitely been on the decline with not a lot of answers. And it's been tough. It's been really tough for that traditional oyster industry down here in Louisiana. Yeah. So Chef Ryan Pruitt, you know, a lot of these stories, I think each of the three, John Cullen and Travis have all mentioned what your involvement did for their efforts and their business. Originally from Memphis, you went to San Francisco, working on farms out there. You moved to New Orleans and worked with Donald Link. Then you become the executive chef of the Link Group. You're operating Herb Saint and Koshan and Gianna, and you're the operating partner chef in Pesh. You're also involved with the Fatback Collective. You're running around with a bunch of rogue barbecue guys, joining barbecue festivals and having all kinds of fun. I know you're on a bunch of boards, and you've studied in Spain and Uruguay, and both your restaurant and yourself won the highly acclaimed James Beard Award for the best chef and the best restaurant in 2014. And you know, I've, I've worked in your kitchen. Sheila's worked in your kitchen. You're kind of the dude. You're the Don in New Orleans and you're the most low-key, integrity-ridden, humble guy any of us could meet. But I know you got a lot to say about the Gulf region and you're passionate, always talking about Gulf seafood. I know you could go on at length about how COVID has crushed your business as it has all of us, but let's talk more about seafood. What have you seen since you first arrived in New Orleans, who's knocking on your back door? How thriving are they, these fishermen and these relationships you have? And then you've reached outside of your local region to Cullen in Alabama, to Travis in Rappahannock and to others. How far outside of your region are you having to go because your region's getting pummeled? And how far outside of your region are you going because there's just great products outside of your region? That's about 12 questions in one yeah, let me let me parse it out there. So I, I think as far as changes go, one thing that I've seen over my sort of almost 16 years in New Orleans is that the diversity of species that we're able to get as a restaurant is improving. So overall picture may be difficult for a lot of fishermen, but there's been a distinct shift to getting other types of species in the restaurant. And for us, we've had our best success with this in working with smaller independent fishers, people who are a little more willing to bring you stuff that they may not have previously considered marketable. One real standout in that arena is a guy named Lance Nasio, who's just doing 
tremendous work. I mean, Lance is a force down in the Gulf, but you know, now he's going out and bringing in Grouper and, and performing Ikejime on the boat. And the quality of the fish that he's bringing in is just off the charts. And he's a super nice, knowledgeable guy. You know, so it's guys like Lance that I think are really sort of developing their own future in the Gulf and with it, allowing restaurants like Pesh access to more diverse and higher quality fish. You know, and maybe an important piece of Lance's story and so many other smaller independent fisher stories is that they had a plan and that plan may have been, I'm going to shrimp my whole life or I'm going to, you know, do blank. I'm going to just catch snapper or whatever it may be through whatever series of changing environmental conditions, economic conditions, whatever it may have been, they've been forced to sort of adapt and shift years, you know, so you see fishing families that get into oyster harvesting and long-term shrimpers that are getting into the more direct uh, restaurant, driving it to the back door type of seafood sales. And so while I'm happy for this because it benefits us, so on a very sort of personal and perhaps a little greedy level, I love it because I'm able to access species at a level of quality that I was not able to get before. And most importantly, create relationships that I enjoy. You know, I I like being able to pick up the phone and talk to the people that I'm buying from firsthand. That means a lot to me. So it's great. It's great for us. You know, my concern is that the people that have made this switch that are doing these things are able to make enough money to continue doing it into perpetuity. And not only them, but share what they've learned and their methods for making money with another generation of people. One of the biggest problems that we have in Louisiana, and I'm sure this is echoed in every fishing community around the country, is a lack of future generations getting into the business. So whether it's oysters, shrimp, finfish, crabs, whatever, there's a lot of people that are, are choosing to leave these fishing areas and go do other things. And it's, it's hard to blame them. It's tough. It's a tough life on the water. But I'm really thankful for the, the guys like Lance and so many other people, our shrimp or Dino, that, that stick it out and provide us with all this high quality food. What was the other question? I have a question for you. I mean, it's COVID related and just how y'all are doing down there and relationships with the restaurant community as a whole. How are you guys doing? How are your colleagues, your fishers, the people that you work with every day? Are you feeling like things are getting better, that you guys are starting to see a little light at the end of the tunnel? I just kind of want to get a pulse on what's going on down there. Sure. I, I mean, you know, New Orleans, a lot of our hospitality industry is based on tourism. And so when that disappears, the, a lot of the hospitality industry disappears. It's been rough. It's just like everywhere else. I think for Pesh, you know, we opened as soon as we could. We tried to maintain all of our relationships with all of our purveyors through our closure from March to May, and then try to get back into purchasing as soon as we could. It was hard because we weren't able to sort of buy the same quantities that we were before. You know, we had to really redesign a lot of our purchasing. And that was difficult because I knew that the people that we were buying from were really counting on us and people like us to continue buying. You know, so we we tried to come up with small schemes to get more food through the restaurant, but fundamentally... When no one's going out to eat, there's only so much that we can buy. 
So that was kind of the depths of the COVID era. I think now I feel very positive about the future. I think better days are ahead. And, you know, I think that going into spring, you know, it's, it's been a beautiful day here. As we get more of these beautiful days, people are going to start going out more, vaccines more prevalent, all these things start happening, tourism comes back, the city will start to reopen. And hopefully, the people that had more difficulty over the COVID period were able to hang on and we can all get things cranked back up again by the fall. Awesome. So, this is the part where if you guys have anything you want to say that we didn't get added to it, you know, there's a lot of restaurant people listening to this podcast and if you want to add anything, no pressure on that, but anything, yeah. John or Travis or Ryan or. Yeah, I'd like to add one thing about Cullen's Oysters and what guys like him have done for the Gulf Coast. I mean, I think that the transformation from Gulf Oyster, where it sort of began as a commodity product and was considered such, you know, you get a dozen oysters for five bucks, quarter oysters, you know, really there just to sell the beer in the bar type of thing. The transformation from that to producing products that are of a quality and appearance that can compete nationally only happen because of people like Cullen and a lot of his sort of cohorts in the oyster industry down here. I mean, they have done such tremendous things for bringing the sort of attention of the oyster world to the Gulf Coast. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Nice. Well, Sheila and I have spent most of our adult careers defending the ability to get fresh seafood in the middle of the country. You know, you'll have somebody sit down at a table in Colorado and say, oh, you're in Colorado, you can't get fresh seafood here. And Meanwhile, LaBernadine is serving tuna from Hawaii and crab from Seattle and swordfish from Mexico or the water grill in LA is flying everything overhead from Nantucket in Florida. And I like to say that you look at an airport as a harbor and the airplanes as fishing boats coming into Denver every day in the belly of every Southwestern and United flight is cargo. And a lot of that cargo is fresh seafood. And so it's really awesome to have these relationships. And Cullen, we're going to start hitting you. There's not a lot of Alabama oysters in Colorado. There's very few, if any, Alabama oysters in Colorado. But I know it's growing and your product is getting real cred and notoriety. And certainly Ryan's doing his work to do that. And Travis, you know, our relationship with you, we don't put it on a plane, but we put it on a truck and we actually truck your oysters out here quite frequently. You do for us. And it's a great relationship. And John, the work you're doing in the Gulf waters to really support the sustainability and help these waters stay viable. It's invaluable, you know, that people like you are really paying attention, not only for the sake of the waters, but the sake of the industry and the fishermen. And Ryan, you know, your talent, you're owning sort of a, a seafood restaurant that every chef secretly wants to own themselves just in the very nature of how it is and, and how it runs and, and how delicious everything is. It's really awesome, but we certainly appreciate the effort of you oystermen. That's a tough go, man. I, I can't imagine being a farmer, which is what you are. You know, farmers have to rely on the weather. Aquatic farmers have to rely on the weather and then the effect of that weather on the water. It's just so much more involved and it's so much more challenging. And our hats are tipped to you madmen who make your living shaking oysters. It's awesome. So thank you guys. Thank you, John, for joining and Travis and Cullen and Pruitt. Good seeing your mug, my brother. 
Well, and thanks a lot. And thanks for, for having me and I guess everybody, but certainly is encouraging to be here. It's, it's been a rough year and I know it has for everybody. Yeah. Uh, she, I guess on the call here. Sheila and I will get down to see in mobile, mobile. And you got to go see Cullen's farm. It's, it's great. You, you start at the beach and you walk a hundred yards out and there's the farm. Nice. Nice. Yeah. It's wonderful. I think there's a, a stump there that you can cut your foot <laughs> up on pretty badly. But other than that, some hurricane debris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's easy going. Awesome. Okay, fellas. Thank you so much. Thank you all. all Appreciate right. it. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Good care. to see y'all. Bye. Bye. Hope you enjoyed that conversation about oysters. I've always had mad respect for farmers in general, and these water farmers take that to a whole new level. Special thanks to Cullen and Travis, John, Chef Ryan, Chef Sheila. Be safe out there. we got vaccines coming for restaurant workers very soon, so that'll be a positive step forward for all of us. And keep your eyes peeled on the calendar for the Gumbo Summit. We're going to get some New Orleans chefs up here in Denver and have some kind of a COVID-friendly gumbo experience where we can get crazy with gumbo. Keep your eyes peeled on the calendar for that. Be kind, be nice, don't drink too much. Look forward to visualizing you listening to the next F Club podcast.